0: Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. I said it was a close call getting the last episode done, and it seems I'm getting down closer and closer to the wire each time. This time was just tough because I had a reporting trip come up on relatively short notice. So I spent a little less than a week in the world's largest wetland, the Brazilian Pantanal, covering record fires there. I'll probably talk a bit more about that on the next episode once I have some time to consider what to say, but seeing as I'm recording this at 8 p.m. on Saturday night, only a few hours before the episode will drop, I'll leave it to when I can give it more consideration. Let's just say it was a wild trip, and we were working 16 to 18-hour days, even through the weekend. I also got back and immediately ripped out an exclusive that had big impact this week about how the fires in the Amazon rainforest are actually worse this August than they were last August when it grabbed global headlines. It made some waves here in Brazil as the government tried to seize on incorrect statistics saying it was the opposite, that things were actually getting better. So me being a fire and deforestation wonk paid off. I'll throw a link to that and the story I did about the pentanol in the episode description. So here we are. This week I bring you my conversation with Atish Patel, a video journalist for Agence France-Presse, or AFP, in New Delhi, India. Atish got in touch via Diksha Madok of Quartz, who was in episode 16. Atish will take you from what it's like to work for Russia Today, better known now as RT, which is essentially a state mouthpiece for Putin's government. He will also open up about getting fired from Reuters' online desk in India, how it changed his perspective on life and journalism, and how he's better for it now. We talk extensively about the business of being a video journalist who, regardless of coronavirus, has to go outside to do his work. We also discuss his interesting background as a Brit whose parents were born in Africa to Indian grandparents, quite the range in this episode. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Atish Patel, an AFP videographer in India. First off, thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. Now, I'm a fan of the show, so it's cool to be on it.
0: To warm up, we usually just have you set the scene a little bit. If you can tell me where you are in the world, what the physical space you're in right now, if you're in an apartment or whatever, and what time it is. So the time is quarter past nine in the
1: evening, and I'm in New Delhi in India. I am a video journalist with AFP, and so I work out of the bureau here, which has been closed for the past few months, and so my home in South Delhi is been my sanctuary, my office, what you will, because of COVID-19. So yeah, I'm currently sitting in my living room. Today is a Sunday. And so here's a day off for me today. So i have had a bit of a lazy Sunday. And tomorrow is technically a holiday. Uh, it'll be a national holiday in India, but I'll be on shift tomorrow and back to work tomorrow.
0: Gotcha. But what was the past week of work like for you? Was it a busy one?
1: It was fairly slow with coronavirus in India is definitely like elsewhere around the world the biggest story at the moment. And so now India has gone under lockdown. Now it's out of the lockdown and it's gradually opening up. And then I think as journalists, we're also realizing that we're in it for the long haul now. And it wasn't a particularly crazy week, to be honest. But I think that's to do with just now pacing ourselves and picking what we think is worth stepping out for, particularly because now if you do sort of head out onto the streets, there is a sense of normality. But when you look at the numbers, cases are still going up. Actually, they're going up at a record rate now. So with that in mind, we are being selective about what we cover and where we're going out to go and shoot. So actually, the past week hasn't been particularly busy, but we're always monitoring. And you know, this country is a vast country as well. And unfortunately, before coronavirus, when we were traveling across the country, across the region to go and cover news events and feature stories. Now just being based in Delhi and with travel restrictions in place, this is sort of where I'm going to be for the foreseeable future professionally. There's some desking work involved in my job. And so we do get some things that need to be edited, for example, from different parts of the country and parts of the region. But I'm not necessarily going out as much to film and to shoot as maybe at the start of the pandemic. Like I said, pacing ourselves.
0: What was the last thing you went out to cover? How do you have to go about it with coronavirus to take precautions?
1: No, the the last thing I went to cover was in an ICE ward. So uh, I'm a field journalist, right? I'm a video journalist. And so I do have to go out there and shoot, right, with my camera. Now I'm at a stage where actually it's interesting because... I feel like I'm volunteering or willing to do assignments where I feel because I work for a wire agency and I have to think about what clients want from images that are being provided by wire agencies. I'm sort of feel like going somewhere like a hospital sort of makes a bit more sense for us to go into as long as there's the precautions in place. And so that was one of the last things I went to go and shoot was inside an ICU, in a hospital in India.
0: Just because a client, so for example, you know, we're talking TV stations, we're talking CNN, things like that. A wire service can provide these images to a bunch of different places. So it's honestly probably the best way to do it. Instead of a hundred places, each sending in one person to film it, send one person from a wire service, and then it'll be used by a hundred places.
1: Absolutely. There's definitely that thinking, but I think... Just like with a lot of stories, right? I still think that even if a wire service was to provide such images, it's not to say that the CNNs and the BBCs and whoever else are our clients won't go and do it. Like, in fact, there have been clients of ours that have gone and want to do their own coverage from hospitals. But I think, you know, for example, going into an ICU, there are obviously certain risks and precautions are definitely taken. But my reasoning was that it's risky, hundred percent, but. I feel like there's value in going and getting those images. I'm a journalist at the end of the day, and I see clients wanting those type of images to be able to better portray the situation in India. So that was my reasoning about, well, hey, it is obviously dangerous, but I don't mind going to do that because there's value in it. And I sort of feel fairly secure in doing it because the hospital is taking certain precautions. So yeah, that's where I'm at at the moment is that every time there is a development in the story in the pandemic where we have to think about going out there, at least I am just thinking to myself, A, obviously, is it safe? And are those images that you're going to be providing that you'll be getting really adding to the story and giving clients images that maybe wouldn't necessarily be that easy to get. And, you know, ultimately just me thinking about myself and making sure that I feel comfortable going to do something like that. So yeah, that's sort of where I'm at at the moment, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Every time it's a calculated risk you're taking.
1: You're absolutely right in that like the information or the metrics I get in terms of the usage of my footage is just how many downloads we get on the wire. And at least from the hospital footage, there's sizable amounts of downloads. And so it sort of feels like that risk was justified, right? And and it wasn't just only a handful of downloads. But now that I've been with AFP since 2017, I feel like I have an understanding about what clients are interested in and what would get downloads and what wouldn't. And so, yeah, that calculated risk, as you're saying, that you have to kind of make now every time I do decide to step out. What's also quite interesting, because... I'm working with colleagues who are photographers and other video journalists, is that I think everyone's sort of got their own interpretation about risk. No one is right and no one is wrong. I think people just need to feel comfortable about doing certain things. And if they're not, then maybe they just shouldn't be going Then,
0: Right. And what what was the arc of the ICU story? Was it did you just go and interview some doctors or was it something more specific than that?
1: The first time we went in, we hadn't yet gone into an Indian hospital. And gradually, cases were rising in India. And I think that was something that was missing in our coverage, in that we didn't have that element of what is the ground reality for doctors and for nurses and inside hospitals. We went into a hospital when cases were really going up in Delhi, and there were also. Reports of hospitals being overwhelmed and unable to manage the situation. The second time we went in, it was when India was hitting the one million mark in terms of registered cases. But it was interesting because the first time we went to a hospital, the beds were full, the ICU was full, all the beds were occupied. But the second time we went in, the ICU wasn't full and it was just a handful of beds which were occupied. And I think the space between those two visits was maybe a month or so, or maybe a month and a half. I can't sort of remember exactly now. But I'm mentioning that because at least in Delhi, we're still registering lots of cases every single day, like a thousand cases every single day. But the situation seems to be under control now, where there's no reports of hospitals being overwhelmed.
0: So yeah, let's move on then into the interview proper. So if you could just start with... Where were you born? A little bit about your family situation or what growing up was like and your early school years, if you showed an interest in journalism or where that came from or when you think it started. Sure. So
1: I grew up in London. I'm born and raised in London, in northwest London, specifically, an area called neasden Lots of Londoners don't know where neasden is. And so <laughs> um, <laughs> the reference point is Wembley, which is the UK's national football stadium. So yeah, and then my interest in journalism. I didn't have an interest in journalism. It came very, very late. I think initially as a kid, I had dreams about being a pilot. I remember like, I was quite fortunate as a kid, my parents took me around the world and we holidayed fairly often and taking planes. And it was going on a jumbo jet or a 747 or it was just kind of that was sort of something I thought would be fun to do be a commercial pilot and then you know as I grew up I realized it's quite expensive to be one for you to get a license <laughs> it, it, it costs quite a lot of money but you know it was something that I thought I'd be doing or I thought it'd be cool to do but I kind of didn't necessarily pay that much mind either in that like I wasn't one of those kids that from the age five thought I'd be X and then just went about fulfilling that dream. I think I was also just being a kid and just rolling with it and just going with the flow. And, and, you know, unlike other Asian parents, my parents were like incredibly chill, like, let me do whatever I wanted to do. So, yeah, I think I went to high school, then went to university. At university, I studied politics.
0: Where did Um, you go to university?
1: I went to Queen Mary University in London. And again, when I was at university and studying politics, it was just something that just interested me. It wasn't because I was looking to get into politics or anything like that. It was just something I thought that at that stage, I quite enjoyed looking into a bit more detail. And then at university, the undergrad program is three years. And so, obviously, come the third year when I had to start thinking about what to do next. It was only then did journalism enter my mind about what I wanted to do after university. And there was a professor at my university. We had one module at uni which focused on Middle East politics. And he was sort of my personal advisor at university. His sister was a journalist at the BBC. And then so it was sort of like, OK, yeah, I know someone at the BBC. Like, I never got in touch with her but it was, I don't know, it was just something that he encouraged. And then he gave me some guidance. The way it works in the UK, I'm not sure if you're aware, but a lot of individuals go and do a postgraduate in journalism.
0: Right. Obviously, it's more of a professional certification or something, almost just in terms of like, it's a, a pretty short course, right? That people do. Exactly, yeah. It's, school.
1: it's like, it's technically called like a postgraduate diploma. So I think it was maybe nine months or 10 months. There's not a dissertation at the end of it. It's interesting because in hindsight now we're like, should I have gone to journalism school? No, I probably wouldn't have gone to journalism school. Knowing what I know now, I probably would have picked up the phone or sent out emails to editors and said, can I come and intern with you? Can I come and intern with you? That's probably what I would have done. But what I did was after completing my undergrad in politics, I went straight into journalism school in the UK for a year. So yeah, that was how I entered journalism.
0: And what it, I, school was it? Just because I talked to yeah. somebody else who did one of these, and I'm just curious if it's the same one. or It was, it was City University
1: in London. There's obviously a bunch of journalism schools in London, and uh, they say City is like the best in London, but whatever, it's like up for debate. So yeah, I got into that. I did TV journalism. Why I chose that was because I think growing up, I was really interested in documentary films, and I wasn't that particularly interested in writing. And I thought TV was my pathway. So, yeah, I did that for a year. So, one of the cool things about that particular program, and that was also another reason why I chose it, was there were also weekly internships. So I did an internship with the BBC for one semester and then with Reuters for one semester and then I think with AP for another semester. And uh, I'm not sure why, but fairly early on, I have had this idea that I would want to work at a wire agency. I think wire agencies, maybe what the appeal was, was that I was interested in covering international news. Growing up in the UK, thankfully, The news that we're fed is quite outward looking. Growing up, I remember on the front page, you'd see news about Burma or Nepal. So, yeah, growing up on that and understanding that there's this big wide world out there. I was particularly interested in being outside of the UK at some stage. So, yeah, that's why I interned at at wire agencies and the BBC because it's BBC and you kind of have to go and see what it's all about. And, you know, I had a great time interning there as well and... But I was particularly focused on making inroads at Y agency. So, yeah, after I finished those nine, 10 months of journalism schooling, I ended up getting freelance shifts at Reuters. And I did that for a few months. And then what happened was previous students from my journalism program had gone to Russia, to Moscow, to work for Russia Today. Do you know Russia Today?
0: Yeah. Yep. Uh, It's probably the only Russian uh, television channel I know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So there had been students in the past that had gone, and I think they were looking for new staff, like broadcast journalists. That was sort of the official title. And I was interested because I thought, okay, cool. Reuters is great. I'm just starting out. It's nice to be getting a few freelance shifts. But Russia Today were offering a salaried position, and then I thought, hey, listen, it'd be fun. Just to go out to Russia and just to see what it's like, and right. you know that was my ambition as well, right? I wanted to leave the country and report and be a journalist outside of the country, so I took that job, and I was there for a year editorially there's There's definitely issues there, and that's why I didn't last particularly long within the company. It's a state
0: owned mouthpiece, one hundred percent not exactly doing stories critical of Putin and stuff like that. Yeah, Yeah,
1: exactly. But I think, see, RT, you know, as, as they call themselves now, I think their goal was to rival the BBC and CNN. And it wasn't necessarily just a report on what's happening in Russia. The idea was to set up offices around the world and be this like global news provider telling Russians and other people around the world about the world and including Russia. But fairly early on, I think the issue I had with being there was how controlling it was. It was a lot of micromanaging. I think that was the issue is that I'd, for example, be assigned to do like at that time there was an India team. So I would be given a package, a report that had come in from the India team and I'd have to just like fine tune it. And it wasn't as simple as that. They'd then after I'd fine-tune it, you'd have to go to like someone senior to me and they'd have to fine-tune it. Basically, it's just a lot of micromanaging. They were direct editors that we were with and you can tell that they were speaking to someone else that we didn't see. And so that was kind of the issues. And it also happened like such a long time ago that I can't necessarily give you so many concrete examples, but it just felt a little bit suffocating and... It just something just didn't feel right, even though it was my first full-time position outside of journalism school. And so I was fairly naive and didn't know that much about the industry. But there was definitely something that didn't fit well with me.
0: And, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I would say that, I mean, I got my start more or less in China. I worked a little bit in the U.S. before I went to China, but so, so many people in China get their start working for China Daily or another state media. Mm. And there it's probably a bit more explicit, the controls, but people generally did not work there more than a year because it, right. it got to be a little bit, it's a suffocating atmosphere to work in.
1: Right. Right, right. But one thing I have to say is that the staff I ended up working with and the people that I met there were fantastic. And so just as a young journalist and just having a good time and being in Moscow and being somewhere totally new, it was such an eye-opening experience. And also, if you step back it is an interesting and fascinating country and I would definitely go back and I would definitely go. And like if I didn't necessarily feel so constricted in terms of my reporting and if things were slightly different, I would definitely go back because I think it's a very interesting country to report from. But yeah, like I said, I had a great time there. I didn't spend very long at RT. I think I spent a year. But after a year, I wanted to see if I could give freelancing a go or just see what happens if I hang around for a little bit longer. And I was able to hang around for one more year. I ended up freelancing for like AP. I was covering sports for them in Moscow. But then after that, a job came up at Reuters in India. And then so I ended up moving to India for Reuters initially.
0: And had that appealed to you or was it just looking at where the jobs were? And had you been to India before? You said you traveled a lot. I mean, what, what was I your think, thinking of think, moving I think, to think, India?
1: So again, at that stage, I kind of wasn't quite ready to go back to the UK. I still had these ambitions, working abroad and being a journalist abroad and me being of Indian heritage, I had been to India before. And what was quite nice is that I had the paperwork to come and work in India and to come and go as I pleased. So yeah, that was one of the driving factors in that it was somewhere new. It wasn't necessarily going back to London and it was with Reuters and... Uh, it was on the online desk. I think now mm-hmm. at this stage, the idea was to come into the Reuters fold once again. And then, to be honest, it wasn't a desk I wanted to permanently be at. Because now at this stage, I was getting an interest in photography. I remember when I was in Russia, DSLRs were emerging as a tool also for video And I remember like when I was in Moscow, you would see a lot of people just with DSLRs. And like for some reason at that stage, up until then, it wasn't necessarily the case in London. You didn't see people hanging around with cameras. And for some reason, when I was in Moscow, I noticed that more and more people just had DSLRs on them. I did a bit more reading up and then I realized that these DSLRs now have like great video capability. So I was like, hey, listen, I'm a video journalist. Up until then, I hadn't owned my own camera. So I was like, hey, let me just buy... A DSLR it kind of makes sense. I'm a video journalist and I should sort of have my own camera. So I did that and then slowly realized that I'm actually using this camera more as a stills camera rather than as a video camera. Like I really got into photography and photojournalism. I then had ambitions to be at. You know, I can't say when exactly that switch happened, but maybe when I got the Reuters job, I thought, hey, okay, well, it's Reuters. It's not maybe the ideal desk that I want to be on, but I'll be having daily interactions with photographers and photo editors and Reuters, of course, is like, I think why agencies, photographers in general, they're photojournalists, they're among the best in the business. So I thought, hey, it's a nice inroad for me to then move onto the photo side of things. But maybe I was just being too aggressive. I signed up for the online desk job and had ambitions. And it was quite clear that I had ambitions with my direct boss and others around me that I wanted to move onto the photo desk. And I think initially they were being accommodating, but then I reached a stage where they weren't particularly happy that I wasn't necessarily focusing too much on my direct job and that I wanted to be over there. So I basically was fired from the Reuters job that I was in.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, um, Did that come as a total surprise? It was a bit
1: of a surprise. I didn't see it coming. It was also interesting because my direct boss was also trying to be accommodating and I thought that, you know, sometimes you come across people that do want you to make the transition if that's what you want to do. But I also understand that sometimes if you're not quite in it, right, if you can clearly tell that you kind of don't want to be working on this desk and you want to be over there. It was a bit of a surprise that they just let me go. But it um, is what
0: I it was is. just going to say that note. I actually know a fair few people who have done jobs that they haven't been quite in it at Reuters and they want to get out of it. And the, the big issue there is I feel like if you put your head down and kind of do really well at your job for two years then maybe bring it up then maybe it'll happen sure. there's kind of a yeah the this paying your dues type thing that sure. if it, but if it's before 2 years your boss fucking does not want to hear it like yeah d- yeah, yeah exactly. do your fucking maybe, job is basically their attitude yeah, yeah. maybe maybe
1: maybe i was being too aggressive i mean in hindsight like i totally understand why i was let go if your heart's not in what you're paid to do And you're using it to piggy bank off of it, to go somewhere else. I understand it. I get it. Maybe it's a bit of an extreme to be like, okay, came out of nowhere. We're firing you. But whatever, it is what it is.
0: To be clear, the multimedia team there, it's more like you do a lot of packaging and stuff. It's a lot of desk work, right? Exactly. Yeah,
1: exactly. A lot of desk work. It's not to say that I wasn't doing any reporting and remember doing some tech stories there. And I did get a couple of images published and... I was quite happy about that. But yeah, the day-to-day was just like desking and it wasn't necessarily the journalism that i envisaged and it was just packaging and putting stuff on the website and tweeting and whatever. So yeah, I was let go from that position. And, you know, in hindsight, actually, I'm really happy that actually happened because then what ended up happening was I came to this point where it was like, okay, fine. I'm now out of a job, but I'm still in India. Like, what do I do? Should I go back to the UK or should I just see how things pan out if I was to freelance in India? And that's what I did. I decided to just freelance because I wasn't quite ready to go back to the UK. And I'm really happy I did that because I had a great time freelancing. I was able to do some photography work. I was able to dabble in video work, which is my core skill. And I was also able to do writing assignments. And I think it all came together because I had Reuters on my CV before then. And, you know, I think things were slightly easier because I had been in India for a few years before I became a freelancer. So, yeah, I was writing for the Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal at that time had a really great blog called India Real Time. It was really a fun blog, and how best to describe it. It really pushed the envelope, and I think the coverage that they were doing was both tarted as well as serious, and that balance was really great. And I got to dabble in both of that, and I worked with great editors there. And it was really interesting. And this was happening even though my writing wasn't necessarily my core skill. It wasn't necessarily a huge interest of mine. It was just, for some reason, because I had this panic moment, and I just sent emails out. To everyone and anyone. I got a response back from Wall Street Journal and I pitched to them and then I continued to pitch to them and I kept on getting responses. So being a freelancer, I found it to be such a great learning curve. I got to work on the stories that really interested me. And most of the time it was me pitching ideas to clients, but every now and then I might get work that I'd be commissioned to do. And although it wouldn't happen very often, but that power of actually saying no sometimes is also just empowering and good because sometimes you just might be busy and you might be able to do it. But other times I don't necessarily believe in that story or I'm not that passionate about that story. So maybe it's best you try and find someone else. And so just that. And I think I learned a lot being a freelancer. And as I became more and more comfortable as a freelancer, I also thought to myself, like I'm not opposed to going back into a newsroom. But I told myself it's worth waiting until the right opportunity comes along rather than just jumping at whatever comes straight away. Because of what I learned at Reuters, right? In that it's not maybe worth getting your foot in to then jumping into somewhere else where you want to actually be. Sometimes it works for other people, but I found in my case that it wasn't so easy. So I thought, hey, let me just wait for the right job to come because I'm happy as a freelancer. And the fact that I was dabbling between text, photo and video. I love that because there were some stories where I just thought it just makes sense for it to be video. And there were other stories where I thought we don't need video for this. I think it's a better text story. And I quite liked moving between those three formats.
0: So who would you work for when it came to video?
1: So I did some work for the guardian i did like a few short documentaries for the guardian on pollution in delhi which is just a story that we have to do every single year it's right our big story every single year and then i did a story for the guardian as well a video story on pollution in the river that goes from delhi to agra where the taj mahal is the yamuna river and then who else did i do videos for
0: that's fine. I just wanted to get yeah. some idea because, yeah, I thought Wall Street Journal real-time blog. There was China real-time as right. well, which was really great and really big. And honestly, I don't know what happened to those. That, are they not around anymore? But yeah, they were more text-based. than yeah. I exactly. don't think they did a lot of video.
1: Do you have any idea what happened to those? I guess they have shut down, definitely. My understanding was and i could be totally wrong who knows but my understanding was is that they wanted to have an india blog because the idea was then to get more and more indian subscribers for the main paper because if i'm not mistaken i think the real-time blog was accessible for free whereas the paper um. at that stage had a paywall but I'm not entirely sure what bore about down downfall. At that stage, the New York Times had an India Pacific blog. And I'm sure that they all influenced each other. India Real Time definitely came first. And then the New York Times had their own India Inc. And then I remember India Inc. closed down... And then soon after, India Realtime closed down as well. I I wonder whether they influence each other in any way. But, you know, in my opinion, India Realtime had a great run. You know, I can't say for how many years they were operating because I wasn't contributing for them for the entire time. Initially being a consumer of their content, it was amazing. It was really, you know, what they published was really the water cooler moments in other newsrooms I found. And then so it was great that when I initially pitched to them and then they said yes, and then they continued to say yes and yes and yes, like it was great because ultimately what I learned the most was just being with the editors and learning again, like I said, I hadn't studied newspaper journalism or writing isn't necessarily my core skill. And so it was interesting to go through these edits with the editors at the journal and then learning and improving my writing with them. That was one of the biggest, I think, takeaways of me as a freelancer.
0: So how long did you do that for and how did you end up getting to AFP? I'm not like very good with like how many, maybe five, six, five, six years. I Maybe
1: I was a freelancer. And oh, wow. So yeah. A while. So actually the main bulk of my time in India has been as a freelancer. And then I'd moved to Mumbai for a brief period of time. Most of my time has been in Delhi, but for a brief period of time, I moved to Mumbai to freelance there. The AFP job came up in 2017. And I had done a little bit of freelancing for them in the past. And I applied because I continued to have ambitions to work at a wire agency because that's what I had been doing in the past. And I was comfortable in that environment. And it just felt right at that particular time for me to make the jump. And like I said, I was looking out for stuff that I thought would be worth giving up freelancing for to become full time. And I thought that the AFP position was something that kind of fit that. So in November 2017, I moved back from Mumbai to Delhi and I
0: became a video journalist for AFP. Cool. So that basically gets us up to where we are today. Yeah. On to the part about stories. So normally I first ask if there's a story that got away in order to not end on a down note. I like to ask about that one first. A story that you wanted to do, but you couldn't do for some reason either. Editors weren't interested. You couldn't get the key source you needed. You couldn't get access. Something went awry during a reporting trip. Could be anything, really, but a story you wanted to do but couldn't quite pull off. Does anything come to mind?
1: Yeah. So in 2016, I and a, another freelancer, Ankita Rao, we got funding from Pulitzer Center.
0: Pulitzer Center, Pulitzer, Pulitzer, right? yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. To do... A series of stories on end of life care in India, so palliative care in India, and
0: huh, like hospice uh, care, that sort of thing. Like right. hospice
1: care, exactly. Yeah, gotcha. there was there's a state in India, Kerala, in South India, which is pioneering its palliative care network and its system. So we reported on that in 2016, and that kind of only worked because we had Pulitzer Center funding. And as a freelancer, you know, d- definitely wouldn't have happened had we not had the funding. But then fast forward to later in that year, I was traveling with my father to East Africa. He's born in Kenya. Both my parents are actually born in East Africa. So it's like... Oh, interesting. Yeah, he was coming from London. I was coming from India. And the idea was just to have a simple vacation, but also learn a little bit about where he grew up. And I had been to Kenya as a child before, but going together... As father and son, like learning about where he grew up and whatnot. And so, yeah, we went to Kenya. We went to Mombasa, where he grew up. And he showed me, you know, the street he grew up on. And we also went to Uganda, where my mum is from. Uh, You know, she's a refugee. Her and her family, like, fled to the UK when Idi Amin kicked out Asians from Uganda. And then we also went to Tanzania. And yeah, it was a great trip. And then my father went back to London. And I hung about the region for a little bit longer. I ended up traveling to Rwanda after that trip and wasn't necessarily expecting that much from Rwanda. I had read a few things about how things moved on ever since 1994 genocide and like it was being seen as this new African beacon of economic growth and I was just fascinated and interested. So I went to Rwanda again as a tourist and it was such a great trip. Firstly, just learning about The genocide was really immense, but I was happy to just get an understanding about what happened there. And then on top of that, it was just such a beautiful country and very friendly people and I had a really nice time. And I was a freelancer at the stage. And so my sort of journalism cap was still on. And I got in touch with sort of a few individuals, some journalists that I ended up meeting, some NGOs ended up meeting there. And... You know, before going to Rwanda, it wasn't necessarily a part of the plan to do stories from there. But I think by the end of it, once I had a better idea about the country and learning a bit more about what was happening, I wanted to come back to Rwanda to do a few stories, particularly focused on women's rights, and also wanted to do a video story on how during the genocide You know, like a lot of these atrocities, rape was used as a weapon. Basically, this one story I wanted to go and pursue was just how they were children of rape who had been born after the genocide, who at the time of my going to Rwanda, they were in their 20s. And I was quite interested in doing a story, doing a video on maybe one or two of these young adults at this stage to just get a sense of where they see themselves in this new Rwanda, which is moving forward now and trying to really evolve after the genocide in 1994. So I left Rwanda thinking that what I'd like to do is I'd like to pitch another idea to Pulitzer Center in the hope of getting a travel grant to go back to Rwanda to do these stories. And because in India, unfortunately, rape is actually a major issue and I've had to cover it before. I've had to meet rape victims before and speak to them on camera. But I thought wanting to do a series of stories on women's rights and developments, including speaking to rape victims during genocide and then their children, I was quite keen to do these stories with another freelance journalist, and preferably a woman, and also preferably someone that's done stories on sexual violence before. So I was able to get in touch with someone who was based in Kenya, and she was keen to pitch these ideas and stories and this trip to the Pulitzer Center. But we sent everything in, but unfortunately, we weren't able to get a grant. It didn't happen for us. Even though I still, I generally do think that they were good ideas, and I remember before making the pitch to... Plitter Center, I had got in touch with various editors from different publications, and they were keen to carry these stories if we were able to get the grant. But yeah, unfortunately, it didn't happen in terms of the grant, and we weren't able to do those stories. You know, I was particularly bummed out about it because it was actually the first time that I was focusing on stories outside of South Asia. By this time, I'd been in India for maybe seven years or eight years, but I felt that It'd be interesting to try and do something from outside. But yeah, kind of didn't unfortunately happen.
0: I know as a freelancer, it can be hard to pull off those trips. A lot of people have to sink in their money up front. And it's kind of a risk, an expensive trip. And then you really have to produce a lot of stories and sell a lot to make it make financial sense.
1: I think also just as I've grown as a journalist, I'm also particularly mindful of telling stories which aren't all doom and gloom. And it's a particularly interesting time to be saying this during COVID time. I think I've known for a while now this idea that a lot of people that read the news don't always just want doom and gloom. You know, our responsibility, I think, as journalists isn't necessarily just to report on the negative aspects of what's happening in our world. And with those pitches about Rwanda and about how these children of rape are now coming of age and about women's development. If I'm not mistaken, I think Rwanda's, like the country has implemented several pro-women policies and it's considered like one of the most equal societies in the world. And I think it's also important sort of as a journalist to highlight those things. Of course, no country, no society is perfect and there's definitely issues everywhere, including Rwanda. But Can I just add, not getting the grant obviously was sad, but it was also totally understandable in that even though as a freelancer, something like the Pulitzer Center existing is fantastic because I think it firstly, just that name is very helpful in selling stories, particularly as a freelancer. And then, of course, money is obviously an issue as well. We don't necessarily always have organizations to back us. And when there are these type of funds that exist, I think particularly when I was a freelancer, they were really were lifelines for us to go and report on stories that we thought were important to tell. But at the same time totally understand that they can't support everything and they can't support everyone.
0: Yeah. And then next up is if we can talk about a story that you're proud of. So I guess pick a story. It can be from whenever in your career. It doesn't have to be with AFP, but can be anything. And just tell us a bit about it and walk us through how you did it from start to finish.
1: Okay. So Jake, I think think one thing that keeps me going in this industry is maybe that idea that my best story is ahead of me. I'm still yet to do. So I'm not going to give you one particular story because I'm also like incredibly hypercritical of my own work as well. It's like I'm my biggest critic. So yeah, I won't give you a particular story. But I also try to abide by this idea that you're only as good as your last story. And so the last story that I have been covering has obviously been the COVID-19 pandemic. And arguably it's the biggest story of our lifetime. And it's not over yet. So... I feel my contribution within the Delhi office covering the pandemic as it continues within India. I've been proud of that. And it's not over yet. We still don't know where it's going to go and where it will take me. And I'd like to think that as the twists and turns happen with this pandemic, that I'm still able to rise to the challenge that it offers. Being now a breaking news reporter and a field journalist
0: And yeah, the first bit about what you said, I think about it as there's this mythical, perfect story out there that, I realize there is no such thing as the perfect story, but mm. I just feel like it's out there. It's just around the corner. The next story might be the perfect story, right. and that keeps you going. You know, you can always do better. Absolutely. And I was going to ask pre-coronavirus, since you've been in India for a while now, and I mm-hmm. will not claim to follow Indian news very closely, but pre-coronavirus, what would you say is the biggest story You've covered in India in your time there? Like for me, it's been the Amazon fires last year for sure, but what has been the biggest thing you've covered as yet?
1: So as I mentioned earlier, one story that always gets eyeballs is pollution in India. We're covering that every single year. But you know, it's a frustrating story a little bit because it comes into focus in North India every single year. And because it's sicklier, it happens every single year. We're struggling to figure out how to tell the story fresh and new. I've, I don't know if you know the Kumbh Mela. It's this Hindu religious gathering on the Ganges River, which uh, Hindus believe. I don't believe think to be. so. It's basically the biggest religious festival in the world. And like it happens over a span of a month, if I'm not mistaken. But there are key dates when massive crowds gather on those particular days to bathe in the river with belief that they're washing away their sins and they're purifying themselves. So I've covered two of those. Crowds at these festivals are immense. They're like tens of millions, hundreds of millions will come together over a day. And so actually covering that has been quite unique and quite fun, actually. I did enjoy covering them, particularly as a visual journalist. And there's also this particular element. So there are these spiritual men, they're called sadhus. And then within those sadhus there is you know, hardcore spiritual men called the naga sadhus. And supposedly, for the duration of the year, they just pray inside caves in the Himalayas and all sort of congregate for this festival and on the main bathing days at like four AM in the morning, so the sun is still not out, they cover themselves in ash. So these holy men are like totally naked. They cover themselves in ash and they are waiting for this particular time on that particular day. It's normally it is in the morning time, like you know, four or five in the morning. They will all line up in front of the river and they'll all jump in. Covering that was really interesting because the idea that these sadhus these hindus have been doing this for like centuries and centuries and centuries and they're still doing it it definitely felt otherworldly covering it and being there and seeing it and really was such an interesting sight to behold and film and to shoe. so that's been a memorable assignment during my time in india and like i said i've done it twice it happens it's a bit confusing when exactly i think it might happen every single year but basically it's all to do with astrology the kind of main cumella I think happens every five years. And then it's like an even bigger one which
0: happens every fifteen years. That sounds like a very visual story. That sounds yeah. very cool. Okay, great. Well yeah, that gives us some sense of the breadth of stuff you're covering. And that's and, from and, and, coronavirus
1: so too. Let me just add as well that you know you asked before coronavirus what was I covering, what was I doing? One amazing thing about India, right, is that like just how colorful it is and just how as a visual journalist, a photographer, a videographer, like this country is just amazing. You know, during a typical year, it is just visually such a feast. So many religious festivals, extremely colorful, people get dressed up, and it's really quite like anywhere else. And I've been really happy to be able to cover those events and be a part of it.
0: And I guess one question before we move on to the lightning round is just, you've been in India quite a long time. Do you feel the pull to go back to the UK? Do you feel the pull to go elsewhere?
1: Yeah, I think I'm getting to that stage now. Where I think I'm ready now to try something new and freshen the outlook. So yeah. I still have that urge to still go and report from somewhere else. Haven't quite figured out where, but I feel like I've had a great time in India now. I have begun to think about maybe moving on. But then that said, COVID is <laughs> is something which is keeping everyone put wherever mm-hmm. they are. So right, the, yeah. the, at the same time, there's not much point thinking beyond India, thinking beyond Delhi. I'm here for now. And so I've just got to adjust. And there's no point in thinking beyond where I'm at right now. It's interesting because I used to be this person that would think about a five-year plan and a 15-year plan. I used to think like that when I was at Reuters and I was hoping to move on to the photo desk. I was like, okay, in five years, I'm going to do this. In 10 years, I'm going to do that. And then when I was let go, all those ideas about a career arc totally fell flat, which was actually another great, benefit of just being fired is that it's a bit of a shock to the system and you just have to adjust. And then from then on, I just rolled with it. And I quite like that way of doing things. You just take it as it comes. I don't think it's necessarily always healthy to plan out your career or your life path because it oftentimes span is always thrown in and COVID is a fantastic example where <laughs> everything has been just like
0: halted. Right. Yeah. Everything's on hold for a year. Yeah. Well, we don't exactly know how long, but right. a year is what I think I like to tell myself. That hopefully, <laughs> this time next year, we'll be past this, but Fingers we'll see, crossed. I guess. Okay, cool. Well, I guess then... One last question, just out of curiosity, because I really like these sorts of stories. Two interviews ago, I talked to my colleague who was born in Argentina to British parents and just this idea of your parents were Indian, but they grew up in Africa. And Mm. I just find these stories fascinating. I was just curious what had brought their respective families to, you had said, Uganda and Kenya.
1: So if I'm not mistaken... And I should know this, but the general wave of migration from India to East Africa was the British Empire. It was when Britain colonized India as well as parts of East Africa. I think, if I'm not mistaken, the British decided to move some workers from India to East Africa. And the idea was to build railroads. I think that was the first initial move between those two regions. And then those Indians that had been taken to East Africa, I think then ended up just staying there. And then they ended up building a life for themselves and then building businesses for themselves. I guess then there was just more migration from India to East Africa as maybe those communities began to prosper. I can't, unfortunately, give you detailed, um, you know, I'm not sure how my grandparents ended up there, but they did. And then both my parents are born in Africa. And I guess it's that link with the empire, basically. And then their movement then to the UK, like I said, my mum's side of the family was refugees.
0: Do you know Idi Amin?
1: Yeah, I know
0: he was very bad.
1: Yeah. My mom's side of the family moved to the UK as refugees because they were thrown out of Uganda. And then my father is is an economic migrant from Kenya who moved to the UK in his teens. So yeah.
0: Do you still have any relatives in Africa?
1: No, there's no one in Africa now, actually. And everyone is in the UK now. When I went back with my dad to Kenya recently, there have been some individuals that this applies to Uganda and Kenya, and I'm assuming Tanzania, but you know, I have less of a connection with Tanzania. But there were people that, for example, Ugandans who were thrown out of Uganda, Asian Ugandans, you know, who went to the UK. But then after several years, I think the Ugandan government were like, listen, you're welcome to come back if you want. And then there were some individuals That my father knows that they did go back and resettle back in Uganda.
0: Yeah, that stuff's fascinating.
1: Yeah. Um, I think it was in 1972 that there was an expulsion of Asians from Uganda. So yeah, it was in 1972, my mum and her side of the family sought refuge in the UK.
0: Gotcha. And then your parents obviously met in the UK. Exactly, Um, yeah.
1: So both my parents are from a part of India called Gujarat, which is in Western India, That's also kind of quite interesting in that the Indian diaspora is also quite good at keeping these ties, particularly when it comes to these regions and cultural connections that you can route back to India, even though
0: they're born in Africa. They obviously had a lot in common, (laughs) fairly specific backgrounds from Gujarat and both grew up in Africa and then both moved to the UK. Yeah, Um, exactly. Cool story. So then, yeah, the next part is the lightning round, the faster paced questions, which if you've listened, you're familiar with. Do you feel ready for that? Yeah, let's do it. So the first question is, what is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day to be informed? I'm more thinking for work.
1: I'm British, so going on the BBC is like it's almost automatic. I was thinking about this the other day. It's like, you know, sometimes when you have internet problems and you don't know whether the internet's working or not, and like you want to check to see if it's working by typing in a specific website. So for me, it's always BBC News. (laughs) And like once that comes up, okay, yeah, it's fine. Like the internet's back on. So BBC, definitely every single day. And then I don't go into the New York Times homepage every day, but I get the newsletter, which I'm particularly fond of because they balance out their main stories. And then once you get towards the end, they're suggesting what you should be cooking for the evening and what you should be watching in the evening. So I kind of like that balance.
0: What about for staying up on Indian news? Do you look at any specific Indian publication?
1: Yeah, I'll obviously go through a few each morning, but there's one that I really, really like, and it's called Live Mint. Sometimes it's just known as The Mint, and it's actually a business newspaper, so it has a business focus, and... That's my favorite Indian newspaper. It's written really well. It's edited really well. It is shorter than the other newspapers. So it's to me, that's a signal that it wants to tell me just the key stories rather than giving me the key stories and a bunch of other stuff that I don't necessarily need to know about. But then on top of that, there really are just amazingly
0: well-reported stories on there. Cool. That's good to get the view from people who are there reporting in these publications that we read what you write, but what are you reading? So that, that's a good one. I've not heard of Live Mint. And then just on top of that, every Saturday they have,
1: it's called the Mint Lounge, which is a bit more of a feature-driven Saturday edition. That alone as well is like a great standalone edition. And majority of it is just features and then right at the end there's two pages for news. So even Mint Lounge, it's Saturday edition is also fantastic and I'm a big fan of that as well.
0: Cool. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun? So I'm a big YouTuber. I'm just constantly on YouTube, particularly these days
1: during COVID when at home so often. Have you heard of Charlemagne the God? Do you know Charlemagne the
0: God? No, no, not heard of it. Okay.
1: There's this radio show called The Breakfast Club. It's like a hip-hop driven interview program. And it's three presenters, including Charlemagne the God. He's a little bit of a controversial figure, but he kind of riles a lot of celebrities up the wrong way. And he's got this reputation. So out of the three interviewers, he's probably the most famous or the most known. And then there's two others Angela Yee, and uh, DJ Envy. But actually, what's great about the show, I find, is just the dynamics between all three of them. I think they work really well as three interviewers. So on the show, they've had a lot of rap stars and rappers and R&B stars. And it's become such a thing that now politicians have begun to go on it. Like Hillary Clinton has been on there, Bernie Sanders has been on there. If I'm not mistaken, pretty much all, All of the Democratic candidates now will go on that show to reach out to, I guess, a younger sort of voter base or maybe an urban voter base. Joe Biden wasn't on it, but many of the other Democratic candidates did go on it.
0: And then what is the best journalistic article piece? Again, it can be any medium text, video, audio that you have consumed recently has to be journalistic, though.
1: I'm not the biggest podcast listener. I have been slowly getting into listening to more and more. Last year, there was a podcast called Hunting Warhead. So it was produced by CBC, the Canadian broadcaster. And it was about the dark web and child abuse. So I was really impressed by that podcast because it was this combination of investigative journalism and true crime. And I think it just really worked well as a podcast. Like it wouldn't have worked as effective as a TV documentary or an article. I think it just really worked really well as a podcast with audio being the format used. And then child abuse is such an interesting topic because it's such a controversial topic to be discussing and to be talking about. But I think as a journalist that actually did do this podcast, they went about interview everyone involved in this. So they spoke to the police involved in trying to find child abusers online. They even spoke to victim's mother, and they even spoke to the abusers themselves. So that idea that, you know, you get an insight and a 360 from every aspect of it. I guess you can say it's a bit controversial to be interviewing an abuser, but it was the first time I've ever, heard from a child abuser. And I think just as a journalist, I think it's important to understand a bit more about these individuals. I I found hunting warhead to be very interesting and set new ground.
0: And then is there any particular subject matter you read into that isn't specifically related to your job?
1: I guess it goes back to what I was saying about what I consume, which is not journalism related. And it's basically rap music, hip hop music, I'm invested in that sort of space growing up on that music and then evolving into this global culture and then just seeing it evolve now. I mean, I'm not necessarily living and breathing it, but I try and keep in touch with new music and new artists.
0: How do you manage your work-life balance or do you even believe in it? I do believe in it strongly, particularly
1: as a staff journalist. I think as a freelance journalist, I was a bit more fluid with it, maybe because... There was less structure when I was a freelancer. I decide when I wanted to work and when I didn't want to work. Whereas, obviously, as a staff journalist, there are schedules and uh, there's times when you have to report to work and there's times when you don't. And I think those times when you don't and you have time to yourself, I think it's important to pull back a little bit and make sure that's time for yourself. And I'm a firm believer that downtime actually helps your Time as a journalist I think that downtime allows you time to reflect and to just think and to ponder and ultimately I think it gives you time to then become a better person and become a better journalist as well so I'm very mindful of my downtime and respecting that balance
0: next question is is Twitter important to you no
1: it's not important to me we're now being told to cope with COVID-19. It's good to read less news. And it's obviously easier said than done being a journalist, being someone that actually produces news. I think that advice is definitely good advice. And then I think for me, that means just less time on social media. And if for some reason, in particularly Twitter, because I think, I don't know, there's something just about the way works that can throw me off and like i might just be scrolling and then all of a sudden i learn about something and it's just like well i kind of didn't want to know about it or like let's just say that for someone that's being a bit more mindful now about stress levels maybe and mental health i feel like twitter isn't necessarily the space that i want to be in all the time i definitely go on there every now and then it definitely serves a purpose in terms of learning about what's happening in the world and what's happening in india Today's a good example because the home minister in India has just contracted coronavirus and he tweeted about it. That's how the news broke. And I think for something like that, obviously serves a purpose, but I am definitely limiting my time on Twitter.
0: If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be?
1: So I don't think there's like one particular journalist, but maybe a particular time like I would love to have met someone like Muhammad Ali. The photos that we have of him in the 60s, I think, to be a reporter, to be a journalist, to to have interviewed him, I think that would have been a career milestone of mine. And I think that era was also interesting because it's not quite like today in that not everyone has a camera. And the idea that maybe me as a video journalist or as a photographer, there was something a bit, more unique in me having a camera on what I captured as opposed to now, I still think there's a purpose for a video journalist, and I definitely offer a skill set that maybe a citizen journalist doesn't offer. but when you look at what a lot of content now in terms of visual journalism is going out, a lot of it is by citizen journalists. I think it would be kind of interesting to be a reporter at a time when maybe cameras weren't so omnipresent you know magazines like life magazine as well like just really amazing groundbreaking photo essays which really memorable journalism i think it would have been an interesting time i guess to, to be a journalist then so rather than a particular person i can't really name anyone but i think a particular moment in time to be a journalist to be a visual journalist i think it would have been maybe around the 60s 50s when cameras weren't
0: on everyone A bit different, but I'll take it. Um, And then what do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? I think I've learned to
1: have conviction. I think conviction is quite a good skill to have. And just to kind of go with your gut or go with your instincts rather than thinking too long and hard about things, particularly in breaking news kind of environment where I've realized there's a lot of split decisions you have to make and sometimes they're wrong decisions but at the end of the day i think it's just good to just have some conviction go with what you're feeling and then run with it and i found that to be quite an effective quality
0: to have what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self
1: what I would tell my younger self is just have fun. Like I said to you earlier, I think initially when I was entering journalism, I thought, okay, I'm going to do this in five years and i want to do this in 10 years and i want to do this in 15 years. And then when you have those milestones in your mind or these ambitions in your mind, you kind of forget that they probably won't be achieved because fucking shit happens that just totally out of your hands and out of your control. I think we're in an industry which can be really intense. So I, I think just have fun because... Ultimately, this is something you're going to be doing day in, day out. And don't take it too seriously, I think. And yeah, enjoy it because it's just a profession at the end of the day, right? But that said, I am actually having fun. I am enjoying it. So it's not necessarily advice I would give maybe to my younger self. I guess it's just like wider advice I I would give.
0: I think that's actually good advice. I could probably do that a bit more and remind myself of that (laughs) a bit more rather than always stressing out about it. And then what is one thing that most people don't know about you? I'm quite a
1: boring person, to be honest. I don't really have any particularly interesting hobbies or anything like that. Maybe people don't know that I'm a middle child. <laughs> sure,
0: sure. I'm, I'm a middle child as well. So oh, there we go. Sol- yeah. <laughs> solidarity among middle children. We're a dying breed, not, not that many middle children right. anymore. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Maybe, maybe we're attracted to journalism, the middle children. I don't know. <laughs> have to do a survey. <laughs> yeah, so my,
1: it's interesting because my elder brother is part of the family business. And then my younger brother is an actor. So we're all quite random.
0: And then oh, my yeah. older brother's an actor. Oh, really? Um, wow. Yeah. What's the family business? We do Windows. Oh, so interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. And then my
1: my younger brother is a stage actor.
0: Yeah, yeah. My older brother is well, a stage actor and a playwright, and like has okay. a theater company, that sort of okay. thing.
1: Nice, um, nice.
0: What kind of acting does your brother do?
1: So the last thing he was in was a musical Who Done It in London, which is kind of fun. I did go and see it before COVID. <laughs> COVID shut it down. So uh-huh. so yeah, he was performing in London in a musical. That's
0: so, cool. Yeah, and then. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why?
1: If we talk about fiction, then I don't think there's anything like perfect in my opinion. But if I had to pick one thing, maybe I'd say The Wire only because... Firstly, The Wire, I think, is probably the best TV show of all time. So there's that. Have you seen it?
0: Yeah, I like The Wire a lot. Yeah.
1: So yeah, I think the journalism series works because it fits into we get to see what's happening elsewhere through the other other seasons of that show and so that's why i think it is one example
0: of it working well yeah it shows how it fits into the bigger world exactly Um, and then the last question is qualifications aside if you couldn't be a journalist what job would you do
1: Maybe cinema or maybe like TV is maybe a more effective way of changing mindsets and changing opinions. And so I think that is definitely, particularly because I'm a video journalist, there is definitely some transferable skills from shooting journalism video to shooting cinema. I think there's an ambition, you know, within me to maybe produce some type of cinematic film
0: yeah. So yeah, that's all of the questions then. How do you feel about it?
1: It was great. It was awesome talking to you. And uh, when we were first in touch through email, I think I mentioned to you it could be quite therapeutic. And I think that's sort of what I like about your show's format. And I've realized that like, listening to more and more of the episodes is that everyone's individual story is as equally interesting as everyone else's even if someone's a wire journalist and someone's a New York Times journalist i've learned that like everyone's all got sort of really interesting stories to tell and so that's why i was keen to speak to you and so i'm happy we've done this
0: yeah i guess i would just say that i do feel like the people i interview tend to get a lot out of it even like people who are skeptical at first mm-hmm. i think once they sit down and done it they've been happy to have done it i think the show is gratifying in a number of levels it's just it's not only you know producing this product and people listening to it and getting feedback but actually like right. the act of doing it is very worthwhile in and of itself even if i've say, weren't publishing it.
1: Right, um, exactly. Does it end up eating a lot of your time? Or have you been able to manage to make it work Like the more you do it?
0: It's about 10 hours to produce an episode. So wow. okay. it, it is a lot to do every two weeks. But if I space it out, it's pretty okay. That said, this week I have not started editing the episode that will come out in a week. So sometimes it's a bit of a crunch. and But yet at other times, I went on vacation for a month once. You know, I just crammed it and got episodes together. So they auto-released. At the end of the day, I'm a journalist and I'm deadline-driven. If mm. you give me a deadline, I'll meet it. So it's fine. The editing is just the real grind. I'm doing this as a hobby, as a passion project. The only reason I would be glad if it got to be a big thing is if I could hire somebody else to edit it. Otherwise, no complaints. There is a virtue to editing it in that I feel like I roll around in the content and really internalize it in a way that I wouldn't necessarily a conversation. I, I never went back to, right. you know, I think about it more deeply. So, so, so no. yeah, it's good.
1: I think it's a great was, show, and and I hope you know. I hope it continues, and I hope it grows, and I hope you are able to get someone else to help. And fingers crossed. Well,
0: uh, it's good to know you're listening, and I'm glad you got in touch. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Atish.
1: No worries. Thanks a lot, Jake, for uh, for speaking to me. It was good fun.
0: That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Atish Patel, an AFP video journalist in New Delhi, India. I'll post links to some of Atish's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at, at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, September 20th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.